We must search for what is truth. You doubt me. Seek proof. What is truth? And what is God? The first duty is to the truth, whether it's scientific truth or historical truth or personal truth. Then here is the proof you seek. You don't really want an answer to that question. Welcome to the AXPX Podcast, honest conversations about faith, doubt, disbelief, and everything in between. I am your host, Sean DeRager. You can find our social media links over at theaxpx.com as well as past shows. And if you'd like to help out, you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash theaxpx. I'm trying to make it special for you guys by giving unedited interviews there, posting those all there, and uh, as well as giving you some behind-the-scenes information as I start bringing in guests and planning out future shows. Today's show, though, I am extremely excited to speak to our guest. I was ecstatic when he uh, accepted via email my invitation. We're talking to Stephen Tobolowsky about his brand new book, My Adventures with God. Judaism plays a small part in my religious upbringing. As a method of discovering the foundation of their Christian faith, my parents took us to a Jewish synagogue on occasion. My recollections are filled with joyous music, celebrating Passover, a menorah at Christmas alongside our Christmas tree, but not too close, and hearing about the Jewish persecution during the Holocaust at an early age. I have since been fascinated with this dark and hopeless time in our world's history and continually am respectful of Judaism and those who practice and live by the Talmud, the Torah, and other sacred texts. Judaism, as I understand it, has never shied away from doubt. Through the religion's history, there have been plenty of horrific moments where most would abandon their faith in an all-powerful and one true God. Of any persecuted people, they have every right to play that card, but they didn't. To me, that is profound. We sometimes find God in the most unlikely of places. I recently stumbled across Stephen Tobolowsky's book, My Adventures with God. Mr. Tobolowsky is hands down my favorite character actor. He's also an amazing storyteller in his own right, with his podcast, The Tobolowsky Files. I knew he'd written a couple books, but I hadn't got around to him yet. But here he was with a book about God. I had to read it as soon as possible. And then I had to talk to Stephen Tobolowsky. It's a huge honor to have you on the AXPX podcast, sir. Well, thank you so much, Sean. It it is a pleasure to be here. I literally just got done reading your book. <laughs> like just literally a few minutes <laughs> before we got on uh, the microphones here. I I have three kids, and it makes finding a time to read very very hard. So I right. read the first few chapters, and then I opted for the audiobook. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I've been going out the past week when I can, and then today just a a push to the end <laughs> to finish your book. 
I've had it on all day. My kids have been hearing your voice all day long. I'm, I'm playing Mr. Mom today, so my wife can do some uh, nonprofit work. And uh, so it's it's great. I just he- heard you uh, reading your story, and now I'm chatting with you. How how old are your kids that are hearing my voice? <laughs> uh, they're 11, uh, 9, and 4. Okay, well, the four-year-old you'll probably will probably be warped for life, but but the eleven and nine will be able to handle it. I think. I think they'll be okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's great because my daughter recognized you from a film. I showed her your picture, and it's something that she had seen. Uh, she recognized you and, and was, "Oh, that guy, he's famous, Dad." <laughs> <You know? laughs> So thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with me uh, about this book, My Adventures with God. I can't recommend this book enough. So thank you for writing this. It was just fantastic to read and and to listen to. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, It you know, it was it went from a labor to love to a labor of like a marriage, you know, that, (laughs) that, that you have to work at it. You know, it took about three years and it was going to be headed for about 10,000 pages. And then my editor was saying, you know, Stephen, not a good idea. You know, you need to pull that back, boy. And so, uh, you know, I spent so much time trying to hone it in and make it, uh, I guess you would say, as opposed to an expanded small story, a very large story in a small space. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and that I think always is more pleasant for a reader. It's sectioned off real nice. And the thing about you, like when I heard you were writing a book, I was like, of course, because I know you as as an actor. Uh, I first saw you, of course, I feel like everyone my age, especially uh, saw you in Groundhog Day first was our first experience uh, seeing you on screen. You popped up in a film that I was watching for another podcast, a film called Mirror Mirror from 1990. Absolutely. <laughs> Playing Mr. Anderson. <laughs> I, I I don't remember the name Mr. Anderson, but I remember Mirror Mirror. Uh, right. Marina Sargente was the director. And uh, when I, I don't know if it's too much of a spoiler, but when <laughs> I go down in that movie, I had to provide my own special effect. <laughs> I, I I had to, I'd like be choking myself of some sort. And, right. Uh, not be able to breathe. And when I finished shooting that scene for real, I had broken the blood vessels in my eyes. Oh my gosh. Yes. All for art. Well, not for, (laughs) but but, you know, the, the great thing about mirror mirror that I will always remember mirror mirror. My wife, Anne is in that movie. Oh, nice. She she plays the real estate agent who is pregnant. However, she is pregnant only in part of the movie. And then she had the baby and then she had a scene with Karen Black after that in which she was going to have to put a pillow under her shirt uh, to still look like the same person that she was pregnant. So she gave birth and I'll make up the day. She gave birth on, let's say, Sunday, Monday, she had to shoot. So, I mean, she was in the hospital. Wow. I'm exhausted lying down there on the chair they provide for the husband, which <laughs> which is like a little better than flying coach on Alitalia. Exactly. You know, they, they preside this little chair. Anne had given birth, and <laughs> I woke up at like 7 in the morning to her 
pulled herself out of bed, put on her clothes, started cleaning up the hospital room. <laughs> uh, Marina was sending a limo to pick Ann up at the hospital. She got in, went, did the scene with the pillow under her shirt, came back, got back in the bed. And I thought that woman is a hillbilly. Wow. <laughs> she is a hillbilly. <laughs> She could not have done it if she didn't have that Georgia hillbilly blood in her. Oh, man. That's incredible. So It was so admirable. (laughs) Luke breaking my blood vessels in my eyes was nothing compared to what that girl went through. Right. Right. And, and of course, you can't hold anything over her with with anything else. That's that's pretty much she one-upped you right there. Oh, oh, that was it for life. That was it for life. (laughs) Yeah. My wife does that all the time, and pretty much it, everything goes back to the birth of our, the three of our children. There's nothing that will beat that time. Uh, so I just, you know, it, it is what it is. You yes. uh, you move on. <laughs> yes. Well, many of us, uh, like I said, know you as as an actor. I started becoming familiar with more of your storytelling through The Tobolowski Files, which is a podcast you had with David Chen from the Slash Filmcast. So I started listening to some of your podcasts when I can, and then didn't you do like a one-man show uh, type thing on stage? Going from a podcast, which is a relatively simple enterprise, Uh to doing a live stage show in Seattle for a thousand people (laughs) is evolved. And then when we ended up filming it, it was like alien evolution. It was like it was like those shows where the spore turns into a plant, turns into a man-eating plant. That is really difficult when you end up taking a story and you have a thousand people in the audience paying money to see that story. And then you bring in a film crew of a dozen people and sound people and film coordinators. And I mean, the primary instinct was one of the major accomplishments in my life. To me, it isn't just like climbing Everest, you know, because I think writing the book, my adventures with God was more like climbing Everest, but like doing the show at the Moore theater and filming it primary instinct was those nuts who like want to climb Everest without (laughs) oxygen. That's what that was like. So that that's really kind of the evolution of the podcast led mm-hmm. to Primary Instinct. And I do believe David and I have been talking about doing another film. So we're going to continue to evolve. When I saw your book, I think David Chen was the one that posted a picture of it. When I saw the picture of the book and I was like, I need to talk to Stephen Tobolowsky because this <laughs> is right up my alley. Uh, I love film. I love the medium of film. I love stories. I wrestle with my own faith. And I was like, this would be something great to read for myself and eventually to, to talk to you about. So mm-hmm. it's interesting for me because I come from a Christian, more of an evangelical Christian background. And mm-hmm. I know that my dad, as of late, has been kind of diving into more forms of Judaism, but with more of a Christian lens. I'm not sure what that's called. I'm sure if I had the time, he would tell me all about it. And I'm sure he will soon. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I know that he does celebrate more of the uh, Jewish festivals and and things like that. And my respect of the Jewish faith has always been how through the Torah, through the Talmud, are okay with wrestling with their faith and wrestling with the words. Is that accurate? I mean, I know that you've wrestled with faith. A- absolutely. I, I think I think in a way you you've kind of just at the beginning of our conversation kind of summed it up. 
in that I think that is a huge difference between Judaism and Christianity, and that is Judaism, Israel, Israel means he who wrestles with God. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so the idea of wrestling with faith and wrestling with the ideas is, is very much a part of Judaism. And this is what I wanted to throw back at you with this, and this is sure. a, a theory that I've read and thought about and I think it's kind of true, and that is it comes down to the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in Judaism, particularly in the early and formative years of Judaism, they really took that commandment uh, to heart that thou shalt not make any graven images. Uh, this, I believe, is why Judaism does not have tons of Jewish art or architecture the idea of having a whole bunch of paintings mm-hmm. about God, I mean, that did really happen. Uh, you, you could take a look at the thousands of years before the Italian Renaissance when uh, Michelangelo was doing pictures of Adam and Eve in the garden. You really don't have Jewish art. And the way this play, and you take a look at Christian art in contrast. Right. The, the, I mean, Christianity is its art. <laughs> and and the amazing art of the Middle Ages, which I absolutely loved, how those figures are pressed so thin, the idea being that man is this wafer-thin creation waiting to be filled with spirit, waiting to be filled with faith. And, and, and that is follows through with some of the great medieval Christian writers, and you and you see that idea. But in Judaism, there is no art. The only art is with words. Mm-hmm. And and the Hebrew language is far different from any Romance language. There are very few words in the vocabulary. I, I again don't Google me on this, but I think <laughs> it's it's a small number, like let's say five hundred different constructions. And 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 yet the words have many different meanings, mm-hmm. which creates accidental and intentional poetry. It creates confusion of ideas, and it also creates multiple meanings to a singular idea, which leads to discussion, confusion, doubt, (laughs) lack of faith. Whereas in Christianity, first there was the word and and the idea that you have that area of interpretation Let's say, um, even though I've never met anyone in my life who believes that the Garden of Eden story is history, hmm. uh, I, I, I certainly, from a lot of atheist friends of mine, they, they go like, oh, yeah, like the earth is 6,000 years old. Right. Where were the T-Rexes? You know, <laughs> I, you get all that snarky kind of stuff. But if you take a look at Jewish writers like Philo of Alexandria, who lived about the same time Jesus did, you know, zero, zero, zero AD, BC, you know, right on that cusp. He, he writes entire essays uh, in his book on creation about how clearly the story of the Garden of Eden is a metaphor. Mm-hmm. And it is a metaphor not of the creation of the earth, but of the creation of consciousness. That in the beginning there was light, which I can interpret, and if you read the Talmud and the Zohar, you can interpret as the light of creation. 
And each, each day of creation, this is Philo's explanation, each day of creation, what God created had more consciousness. You, you start with the creepy crawlies, then the fish of the sea, then the birds of the air, then the beast of the field. Everything is moving forward in consciousness. So you even have interpretations uh, which challenge literalism mm-hmm. uh, 2,000 years ago in right. Judaism. Uh, there's There was no real discussion that this really happened. Uh, you, you have that more in Christianity than in Judaism. Yeah, and I've always found that very fascinating, especially being someone who had who was raised with the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament. These are the yeah. literal like words of God. This is history. This is set in stone. As I had kids, started questioning things, going through things, like finally starting to have time to really parse all this mm-hmm. <laughs> in my understanding of it, I started diving in and reading more things, even taking some like online college courses about the Jewish Bible and uh, even the Christian Gospels which was great because it boils it all down to the uh, the society at the time, how certain societies told stories. And what's interesting about the Jewish culture, especially the ancient Jewish culture, was their understanding of story and the and history. Like it's, they were building their own narrative, but it didn't really, they weren't concerned, I guess, with all the facts. They would borrow from other uh, creation myths and other things to create their narrative as they were, you know, as this was being passed down. And and what and what I for some reason like I just never even thought about it. But uh, the, all this was storytelling through oral tradition, and then eventually was written down. And once I started connecting those pieces, it it all clicked for me where it didn't really matter about the history. But once I understood how these stories were told, it almost like a, it was almost like a light bulb went off. In my head. Yeah. Well, well, don't get me wrong. You know, if you read the Talmud, there mm-hmm. is a great deal of energy put into making everything in the Torah be absolutely true and absolutely make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, th- like, for example, and again, I I think it was said that in the Torah there are Oh, I can't remember if it's 614 or 611 commandments. Someone who, who's got this information on the top of their noggin could probably, but it's one of those two. For, for the purpose of what I'm about to say, it doesn't matter which it is. Because the point is, those number of commandments don't exist in the Torah. The idea is that the number uh, of commandments in the Torah came across from... Uh, Geometrica uh, came through a medieval uh, construct, like like almost like a Tom Hanks movie of Inferno or something, or you know that there was a medieval code within the letters of the Torah that said exactly how many commandments were there. It was a secret code that you you deciphered, and there were people like Maimonides in the Middle Ages, who took it upon themselves to find each and every one of those commandments. And, 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 and they, they beat that text as much as they could to make it all make sense. Mm-hmm. But I think and one, one of the main lines you'll see in the Talmud over and over again is, there is no argument here. 
this makes total sense. As one of the rabbis explains how this makes everything flow and it's completely truthful and completely logical. But there is another element of Judaism that I personally find more compelling. And that's kind of from the school of Nachmanides, who is a far more kind of mystical kind of writer in the Renaissance sort of period, Middle Ages, Renaissance sort of period. And it was the kind of idea that at any, here's an example of something from the Talmud, at any one time, there are only 34 people, 36 Oh, I'm having trouble with numbers. It's just the jet lag. It's 18 times two. So that's 36. At any one time, there's only 36 people that stand between us and the forces of darkness. But the trick is that we never know when it's our turn to be one of the 36. So we have to be ever vigilant. Now, this is a typical kind of Jewish teaching, which says that the forces of darkness are overwhelming, and yet the forces of light are so much more powerful, which is a Christian idea, too, mm-hmm. that, that no matter how powerful Satan is, God is far more powerful, that, that the power of light is so much more powerful than the, than the powers of darkness, but— the light has to be ever so much more vigilant because, for example, you never know when you are going to be called upon to be one of the 36. So it creates doubt with that kind of statement. It creates faith and it creates a desire on the listener to be one of the good guys. Everybody (laughs) wants to be the hero of some story. And it creates a desire among the listener to be one of the people who's going to protect the rest of us. And that is a good formula mm-hmm. for, uh, for civilization, not a bad one. Wow. And, and that is one reason, too, why I think Judaism has survived not all the facts, but because of that spiritual element. Right. It's great. I mean, I, it's, it's something that I've continue to want to dive into more and, and, and as I learn and especially like this podcast gives me an excuse to dive into the stuff which is which is really uh really good for me I think um just need to get the kids to settle down so I can have some time to do some <laughs> some reading uh I, I have all these books that I that are staring at staring back at me that I really want to dive into and I'm like oh man I don't know when I'm going to have a chunk of time to really wrap my brain around that <laughs> No, no, it doesn't happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen one of these days. Um, So what sparked the interest for you to start writing uh, this book in particular? Was it just all these stories you were collecting or or was it something else? Well, I I had this calamity in 2008, which people who listen to the podcast know all about. And that's when I broke my neck Mm -hmm. in five places riding on a horse on the side of an active volcano in Iceland. And when I came back to America, the doctor said I had a fatal injury, so I went from bad to worse. Well, obviously I didn't, but I I thought first I was shocked, and then I thought that's kind of funny that he would say that to a living patient. (laughs) And then I thought, wait a minute, that was kind of inspirational. What would happen if what the doctor said was true and I died on top of that mountain? What would I have wanted my two boys Mm -hmm. to know about their dad? Uh, but now he's dead. 
So as a form of therapy, as a form of passing the time with my broken neck, because I certainly couldn't work, I began writing these stories, uh, true stories from my life that I wanted my kids to know about me. And it just so happened it was at that time David Chen called me, said, would you be interested in doing a podcast of true stories that kind of spins off the movie uh, Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party? While I was working on the stories, I said, sure. Those stories became the Tobolowsky files, which ended up on the radio, which ended up in my first book, Mm -hmm. uh, The Dangerous Animals Club. Mm-hmm. with Simon and Schuster. My editor at Simon and Schuster called me about three months after the first book was released and said, you know, what people are responding to are the humor in your stories, but also your stories have this kind of odd spiritual turn to them. And people are really responding to that. Do you think you could write another book of stories, true stories, that kind of map the arc of the, the evolution of faith in a human life. Hmm. And I went like, yeah, sure. <laughs> no problem there. You know, I had no idea what I was going to write. And, and, but you know, Ben, my editor asked me to write a book. I'm certainly going to say, yes, I'm not that right. big an idiot. Uh, so I, that's when I got the idea of the construction of the book. And at the beginning, it was kind of just an excuse to write thinking that, well, what if I broke it down into the five books of the Torah Mm. and everybody has a Genesis. We all have these stories we tell on a first date with the first glass of Chardonnay Mm -hmm. about where we come from and who our families are and what our aspirations are and the terrors we've had in our life. Then we all go into slavery like in Exodus, uh, except instead of building pyramids, uh, some people have absolutely terrible first jobs or we find God in our first girlfriend's eyes like I did. Some people, boy, even way back then, you know, I lost friends to drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. And then others just stayed in graduate school forever. (laughs) And and then like in the Bible, we break free and we, we still find that we're stuck in the middle of the desert like at the end of Exodus. Mm -hmm. Then we have a Leviticus moment, which you have already had. (laughs) And that is when I got married, when I had kids, Mm -hmm. when I retackled the subject of faith. And in my case, I, I fell in love with Judaism all over again and really took it up wholeheartedly. And then we're all shaped by mortality like in the book of Numbers, and we lose family and friends, dear ones to us, and we are reshaped. And if we're lucky, we end up in the book of Deuteronomy, where we end up telling our stories, like Moses told to the children of Israel. We end up telling our stories of what our journey was about to see if it made sense in the first place. So this was, I thought, a pretty good outline to put true stories, to plug various true stories to create an arc. But as I began writing, this little excuse developed more and more power, and I began to see it as more and more true, certainly in my life and in people I knew. And the outline itself, the idea of the outline itself, began to inspire what stories had to be written next. And uh, that is kind of 
what created the process of writing this book. I didn't even read anything on the back of the book. I just dove in and I didn't even uh, even even realize there were going to be sections until I heard your voice say, you know, section two, you know, <laughs> yes, yes. And I went, oh, OK, I see. I, I, I he's doing something here. And I got that as I worked my way through the book and I just found so much and and I and I feel a lot of people who have gone through similar arcs in various you know moments of their lives are going to be hit at certain point with some some truths that they you know, that they also went through. I mean, for you it happened young in uh when you started to kind of question God and and when you, when you tell the story about uh, that 10-year-old was uh, it a 10-year-old boy who died in the plane crash? And that's when yes. you really started questioning. Well, for me, it was when my brother-in-law died in a car accident. And that was kind of my moment. And that was, that was about 12 years ago. But that was that was a catalyst for me to really kind of start deconstructing um, a lot. But it, I feel like, I mean, at when you were 10, when you went through this, did you feel like you had a lot to unpack? Or was it something that since you were so young, you know, was it just an easy transition for you to kind of just kind of question and then move on with your life? No, it wasn't easy because I had so much small, so many smaller suitcases, you know, in terms to unpack, my world was so small. And in that world, God played a big part of it going to Sunday school every week uh, for the last four years. So half my life, almost, I've been going to Sunday school. And, and so that was a big investment, plus the fact I was inclined uh, from birth, from maybe a priori knowledge. I was inclined to believe in the divine as a person as opposed to believe in nothing. And, and so it was a big, big blow for me, uh, as well as the Kennedy assassination was – equally powerful, but in kind of a different way it, in that it, it was almost, I don't want to say more telling, but, but, but certainly at that point in time, I had really from the age of 10 to the age of 12, those two years, I really didn't think much about religion or much about God. I still went to Sunday school, but only as a social thing and, and only to learn Bible stories and to study Hebrew. It was just fun to learn, but I didn't really buy into anything. But when Kennedy was shot, and it was such a startling thing for us kids to experience that the President of the United yeah. States was shot. And when our principal said, we'll take a two-minute moment of silence— and realizing how long two minutes is, <laughs> and and you try it sometime at home, just be mm -hmm. quiet for two minutes, and that's how long we were quiet as kids. And then our principal saying, "Now, if we could say a silent prayer for our president and his family," there was something in the moment of silence that was so compelling that even though I didn't think about. God or faith or anything at all, I was compelled to bow my head and fold my hands. And as I mentioned in the book, I still, to this day, remember the prayer I said in that classroom when I was in seventh grade, when I was 12 years old, dear God, I hope he's all right. Mm. 
And it is a prayer that has stayed with me my entire life with any dear friend of mine who's had difficulties or trouble or is, or is facing death. I look at it when I have almost faced death in my life. Dear God, please, I hope I will be all right. Because I realize that's all any of us really hope. Yeah. It's kind of the seed of any belief in any faith is, are we going to be all right? There's so many moments in the book that ring so true to me and as I was going through it as well. And your chronicling of Abe, uh, who was a Holocaust survivor, was a very powerful moment of, of this book. And I know that you had done this for uh, one of your podcast episodes and then chronicle it here in, in this book. And I think that's so important. It shows the importance of storytelling because as we... As time moves on, you know, we move farther and farther away from those moments, from the Holocaust, and it's an important piece of history to be, you know, retained. And the farther we get from it, the more, the only thing we have left is, you know, stories. Was that always uh, an idea for for the book to bring that back in, even though you'd covered it on the, on the podcast? Absolutely, because, yeah. you know, I had new new material, too, since I wrote since I wrote the podcast, I, I had, you know, new, new facets of the story kind of presented themselves. But, but I would agree with you. To me, looking at that story, it's, for me, the most important story in the book. The two stories in the book, The Kaddish and A Good Day at Auschwitz, mm -hmm. are the most important stories in the book for several reasons. Uh, one reason is what you say. It is critical in terms of the way we view humanity and how people can do this to other people. And also the very surprising roles that are revealed in the story of the German soldiers who were watching over Abe yeah. uh, and his reaction to those men uh, as being, well, I don't want to spoil much of the story, but it's very surprising. <laughs> right. But but also, in terms of what you say about storytelling, Abe, during the pro it took two years to get this mm. story from Abe. Mm. And that's a lot of Canadian club whiskey and corned beef sandwiches, <laughs> let me tell you. And, and somewhere in year two, Abe hands me these print, handwritten pages, 20, 30 pages handwritten, all capital letters in pencil with cross outs of the story of his life. Wow. And he says, Mr. T, I give this story to you. And, and I go, Oh, great. Thank you, Abe. <laughs> you know, like no big deal. And then as I'm writing it, I realize the obligation mm -hmm. and the responsibility of telling this story very much like when we mourn in Judaism and we stand and say the Kaddish, the reason we stand and say the Kaddish is that grief needs a witness. It's the only way grief can heal. Grief doesn't get healed by hiding it. Right. Grief needs a witness. So in a way, when Abe handed me those damn pieces of paper, I became the witness and it was my job to write his story. And so as I began writing the book, the, the process of writing his story became more of a solemn obligation 
than anything I had expected before. And this is a story I'll share with you. Wasn't a happy story. Hmm. So if people know about how a book works, you, an author writes a book and then you work with an editor. I happen to work with a very brilliant man, Ben Lonan from Simon and Schuster. Now he's their senior editor there. And the editor makes recommendations as to changes makes usually, usually the changes that are making shorter, you know, he would say, Stephen, we only need one joke here. We don't need three, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And, and I have a very brilliant editor who understands my writing and my humor and works well with me that way and making great, great, great suggestions. Mm -hmm. Then you work with copy editors for a few months and they go through the nuts and bolts of fact checking everything, uh, making sure foreign words are spelled correctly and are in the proper tense. I mean, stuff you wouldn't even believe. Mm -hmm. that they go, th they go through. And this process takes several months and you have four passes of this. You go through your book, you read your book hundreds of times and you end up with the fourth pass. Then you look at it. It's now been through so many checks and so many balances from experts. And I had the book to where it was in perfect shape. Then I was to do the audiobook, which you were listening to with your children. <laughs> and uh, the copy of the audiobook came six weeks of, of my script, of the text I was supposed to read for the audio, came six weeks after I finished editing the book. So the book was all set, was all done. And now I have to start reading the book from the beginning with my engineer to record the book. So the Abe stories are pretty late in the book. They're probably three quarters of the way through the book. So I get to the Abe stories and I see a new mistake hmm. that, and the book is supposedly already going to print at this point. And that is, they got his number wrong. Oh, that some computer or somebody or something happened. And since I finished the editing of the book, Something went back and they redid the number of the tattoo on his arm at Auschwitz. And I went nuts. Wow. I went and said, I'm going like, you can't do this. It was his name. It's the most important part of the story was it was the number on his arm. It was the first way we were introduced when Abe was getting the tattoo removed. It's a, it's a big part of the story. It has to be correct. The number has to be correct. Or it makes me look like an idiot. And it it is uh, – it hurts mm -hmm. Abe's – it is uh, an insult to Abe's memory. And I call up – Ben, I call I, my my edit, I call up everybody I can call up at Simon Schuster and start screaming to where I think I'm going. <laughs> like Anne was thinking, I was practicing my Jack Barker lines from Silicon Valley. Like I'm just screaming over the phone at, at these people, and they said, "Well, we'll we'll get back to you." I said, "I said you can't print the book if you don't change his number back." Yeah. And then they called me back uh, immediately, said, we changed it. The numbers changed. It's all good. And so there's a happy ending to the story. But the point being, I went from being a casual caretaker of the story, as we often are, mm 
Uh-huh. And then an evolution occurs. And I became one of those people who had to be keeper of the flame. I had to be one of those people who was rigorous and orthodox in mm-hmm. protecting the the absolute integrity of Abe's story and in passing it on to Simon and Schuster, they then became the keeper of the flame. They, I had to pass it on to them. They had to make sure it was just as accurate as I, as I did too. You, you can't slough off at all. And now it's, <laughs> they have joined the party with me in terms of keeping the flame of Abe alive. Uh, I, I was saying to people, you know, that you don't have time to read, you, you don't have time to do this. You, <laughs> if you look at this book, you read these two stories, and and you would have gotten your money's worth. But I would say, <laughs> you know, the whole book is very enjoyable to me. I, I find it uh-huh. amusing. I like it a lot. But but the Abe stories, to me, are what the book is about. And, and another thing, I forgot one more thing. I have to say one sure. more thing. Yeah. The one image in the Abe story that keeps haunting me is what you were just talking about, about reaching a crisis of faith when things happen. Because I ask Abe, how could you have faith after the Holocaust? Now, you're talking about when your when your in-law died, was hit by a drunk driver or something? Well, he was, he, he was behind the wheel when he shouldn't have been. <laughs> I see. Basically. I yeah. see. I see. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I... Uh, an episode and you go like, what? and me with the 10 year old boy when I was 10 right. years old. And I'm thinking like, how could this happen in a world with a God? How could the Holocaust right. happen in a world with a God? And ironically, you know, Abe said when people got out of Auschwitz, the first thing they did is went to the synagogues. <laughs> and I said, why? They still had their faith? And he says, no, no, some didn't, some did. But that's where we knew we would be able to find out who lived and who died. That's where Mm. we knew all the information. It would all come through the synagogues. And I said, but Abe, you had nothing. You you were in there. You had nothing. You had no clothes. You had no food. You had no nothing. And he said it was the prayer books. I said, excuse me? He says, the prayer books. All of us went to the synagogue and we ripped a page out of the prayer book with the Hebrew prayers. And wherever we went in Germany, in, in, in Poland, where, wherever we were, we would hold up just the page with the prayer books, with the, with the Jewish prayers. And people would see the Hebrew and know who they were and know what they went through and give them whatever they needed. <laughs> They would give them food. They would give them clothing. They would give them shelter. I asked Abe, what's the craziest thing you ever got with your prayer book? He said, a motorcycle. (laughs) I mean, it is a testament to what people are and what people can be, both the good and the bad. It is incredible. And we've we've seen this throughout the years as well. It's just in in crisis we see both like the worst and the best of people and the best of people is is the absolute best the the generosity the the compassion like that's all important and um and, and you don't see that on a day to day so it's it's it is incredible i mean you know 
other there's you know yin and the yang or if i'm pronouncing that right you know uh the the balancing i, I would i would say you know the dark side of the force and the light side of the force right those sure <laughs> that's, that's my understanding i'm there <laughs> of, uh, from when I, when I when i was growing up but it it is incredible and then and that that's and that part of your book really does show that i think what's great about your your book is it is a bit of a roller coaster ride from humor to uh, very poignant stories to realizations. I mean, I find myself like laughing, you know, at, at one moment and just tearing up at another moment, you know, um, through through your stories. It's just it's a fantastic read, and I would I would recommend anyone to pick this up. And no matter what like, what your spiritual background is, it doesn't matter at all because I think this touches so many aspects of. Anyone who's on, who's, who's been on or is on a faith journey. And I, and that's the beautiful thing, I think, about the faith journey that everyone's on is when I was started to go through my kind of crisis of faith or, or whatever, like I felt like through my, my wife and through, uh, members of the family, like everyone wanted me to kind of get to my end point right away. <laughs> and the beautiful thing I think about faith and about life is, you know, and I think your book reaffirms this in a very poignant way for myself is that, you know, we shouldn't be rushing to, to, you know, an end point in our faith journey. Like our life is our faith journey from the moment we enter this world to the moment we leave this world. And I think more people, especially my circles of, of the evangelical Christian, uh, that I grew up in is, you know, embrace the journey and embrace the doubt. And I think, you know, you can live a more fulfilled life that way and be more and approach more people through stories and through conversations. And um, I, I especially loved, especially as you were closing out near, near the end of the book. And one of your son, Robert was, he was more doubtful of, of faith and, and even in what he'd been raised. And he proposes a lot of, banter back and forth between you and, and him and um and I, I know that I'm gonna be reaching that with my kids as they get older. <laughs> were were you prepared for for that when, when he started kind of challenging, you know, your your beliefs and what you know what he should or shouldn't be believing? I I first of all I'm I'm a hundred percent on your team where <laughs> where you know, there is no real endpoint of the faith journey because we are not fixed points in time and space. Mm-hmm. We change. And as we change, our needs change. Certainly, when I was 20 years old and going to college and listening to rock and roll, my understanding of God, my needs of God and faith were completely different than when I was being wheeled in for open heart surgery. Yeah, It's a whole different thing. When you have children, your life completely changes. And again, like I was keeper of the flame of Abe's story, once that little Robert and once that little William were born, I was keeper of the flames of those two children. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a person to say, this is this is what your faith has to be because they're going to have their own needs. But what I did was we exposed them to uh, elements of the Torah. We ex- exposed them to the holidays and to some of the brilliant minds that have existed in the worlds of faith. 
And both of my kids turned out to be scientists and more mm-hmm. power to them. And as That's great. And as video games lose their glow, <laughs> yeah, they may find themselves looking elsewhere to fill that vacant spot in their life. And, and that'll be their journey. And mm-hmm. whatever their crisis will be, it'll kind of direct them into that journey. I thought it was great how you found yourself in in conversation and almost a heated conversation because he was challenging, uh, <laughs> challenging what what you believed in. And uh, I mean, I've done that to my parents. Uh, I still do that. <laughs> it was <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> we're we're fighting with each other at the dinner table, and Anne is like going nuts. My wife Anne, like Stephen, my stomach. Please stop it. You know. Right. And she's right. She's so right. And uh, but also Robert is is as kind and a compassionate a fellow. And uh, he's honest and generous. So I think uh, without having a specific dogma attached, uh, I could take his sarcastic eye rolls. I mean, <laughs> you, know, you know, whenever he has to help me download iTunes, I get the sarcastic eye roll. And whenever he sees me getting ready to go to synagogue, you know, I get the sarcastic eye roll. However, when it came to Passover hmm. and uh, and does Passover, we do the Passover service at home. I was thinking like, and Anne was thinking too, well, William is out of town. Our youngest William is out of town in school. It's just Robert. Maybe we should just blow it off and not do the Passover service at home. And then Anne and I could go to synagogue and have the Passover service there and have a kind of real Passover service there. And so we talked to Robert. We figured he'd just jump on board that train. He got real upset. He said, no, 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 we have to have Passover. You know, and I went like, oh, it's tradition. You know, he's warmed by the tradition. And there are many things that draw people to faith. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of it is crisis. Uh, but fortunately, there is something like faith that can handle crisis. But another one is just tradition. It makes us feel grounded and whole. Uh, One of the examples I was talking about at the beginning of our conversation about how Judaism has very few words, but the words have different meanings. I mean, we all, I think everybody, at least from sitcoms, know the word shalom. I mean, everybody has heard, oh, shalom. Shalom means peace. Shalom means hello. You know, hey, shalom, you know, shalom. Uh, But it also means whole, as in complete, not whole as in a whole in a board, but whole as in complete, uh, congruent, everything fitting together. That's another meaning of shalom. And I think people search for shalom their entire life. They search for that feeling of wholeness of being complete. And that's one reason, actually, why I think people turn to drugs and alcohol, because getting stoned makes you feel shalom. You feel complete when all you can do is get loaded and watch old Hercules movies. (laughs) You go like, man, this is it. This is as good as it gets. That's true. I think you do a great job of when you're talking about your 
early earlier years, uh, you know, getting into to LA and the group of friends you had there, all trying to find jobs, all on the same playing field, uh-huh. experimenting uh, with with drugs and alcohol, and um, I think. Because I'm, I'm used to reading things and saying people, uh, uh, authors or, or people telling their stories and how horrible it all was. But, you know, you, you, you can see through your story, like at, at the time, that was something, you know, that was really great at the time. It was fabulous. <laughs> there's no, there's no hiding that fact. I had no idea cocaine was such a great drug. <laughs> right. I mean, thing. but I feel like the impact of your story so far. Stephen is is you being able to tell that story and us as the the reader or the listener to see your transition through your childhood through your young adult life to now and and your understandings of of who God is to you and and it, I think it's it's, it's just it's just a fantastic thing and and I personally wanted to thank thank you for sharing your story through this book. I, I listened to it and now I want to, I mean, I want to read through it again. Uh-huh. And I know that there's things that I've missed and things that will, you know, that I'll be able to dive in more once, once I kind of sit down and, and read it again. But, you know, thank you so much for, for sharing, being so open and honest with this book. I really appreciate it. Well, thank level. you. Thank you for reading it and listening to it, Sean. <laughs> I appreciate it. Of course. So through all this and through writing this book, who is God to you? God to me is very much like a God described by Aristotle and by Philo of Alexandria. And that is a spirit that is everywhere, that has been here, that has no time, exists outside of time, and has the ability it has ability is the wrong word it is able to create wisdom in us by contact with it it's like those science fiction movies where you touch the stone and you change mm-hmm. i think i think that is true and i think that there is a spirit that is eternal that is everywhere it's easily accessible uh, and and when you touch it or when it touches you you become something different, and usually in the good column. Usually it moves you closer to wisdom, mm-hmm. and and that is what God is to me. Very nice. Stephen Toblowski, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I know that uh, you had your book tour, and <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you need to get into recharge mode. And yeah. I just really appreciate you talking to me about all this, and, and uh, again, thank you for this book. I highly re- recommend it. And anyone should pick this up, definitely. Thank you so much, Sean. Well, that's going to do it for this week's podcast. I want to thank all of you for listening. I want to thank my guest, Stephen Tobolowski, for joining me and having this conversation. His book is My Adventures with God. There will be links in the show notes where you can grab the book. I would highly recommend grabbing the audiobook as well as the printed book. You'll thank me later. Music on this episode was brought to you by the Candle Park Stars, Jay Elliott, 
and Slow Dancing Society. All their music can be found over at theaxpx.com slash music. Please support these artists and buy their music if you're able. And with that, I'll talk to all of you next time. Again, thank you so much for supporting the show, either just by listening and telling people about it, or by joining the Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash the AXPX. Everything you can find, as far as links goes, is over at the AXPX.com. Thank you so much for listening.